This was daddy-daughter weekend, which is okay for the first day. But about Friday mid-afternoon, I had said, Emery, why are you doing that? Maybe 50 times. And I was kind of just tired of it. I might just, if you're a single mom here today or a single dad, I just, you have all of my respect. Just all of it. I don't know why she wants to put every toy that she owned on top of the cat's head. And I don't know why, well, actually, do you know why snack time just doesn't like to move? And so she's just meowing and meowing like, Emery, stop putting things on the cat. So anyway, after all of that, I, I turned to the scriptures and really felt um, God's pain as he's dealing with these Israelites. If God has hair, he's definitely pulling it out as we've been going through the scriptures saying, why are you guys doing this? I, I've told you what to do. Why are you disobeying me left and right? And the story thus far as we've been talking about it has, has tracked with, with uh, Eli and his house falling and uh, about how they have lost the ark. And if you've got your Bibles here today um, or your phones or whatever, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter uh, 5 and 6. We'll be looking at these stories today. And just a kind of refresher from the last few weeks, this is the world, you are here-ish. Uh, Israel is over here. And um, this is a kind of a close-up of Israel, or sometimes it's broken into Israel-Judah. And this is the Philistines who have come from the sea. They're a seafaring people, and they're coming, and they're taking more and more territory. And there's a battle up here at Aphek, a strong battle between the Israelites and between the Philistines, and the Philistines are winning. And so Israel has this bright idea, well, hey, if we brought the Ark of the Covenant, this holy object which is, which is meant to be kept within the holy place, so remember that there's the tabernacle, then there's the holy place, and then there was an inner tent, even inside that smaller tent, the Holy of Holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was to dwell, was to live. And God would come and he would rest upon that. Only one time a year was the high priest allowed to go in and to make atonement or make peace between God and the people. So the Ark of the Covenant was only to be seen once a year in that Holy of Holy place. And yet they bring it out, bring it to the battlefield, saying, well, if God's with us, if I we do this too. Say this prayer, of course, God will give us victory, but you can't make God do anything. And so they lose the battle, for it was God's will that they lose the battle. And now, not only have they lost the battle, not only has the high priest and the priests died, but they have also lost the Ark of the Covenant, and the people lament. Now the stories that we're going to engage in today, in chapters 5 and 6, are really fun. Those are the stories of the Ark as it dwells in the lands of the Philistine. And so you need to forget yourself a little bit today. I know that you're all you know, upright, good church-going people with your finery, and you're not 11-year-old boys or girls around a campfire, but you need to pretend today that you're 11-year-old boys or girls around the campfire, and your uncle or grandpa or father or mother, whoever's standing around, and we're telling the stories of what happens when the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant. Because it's funny, very funny stuff. Well, the first thing that you would do if you were a Philistine and you captured the Ark of the Covenant is you would bring it into your temple. Uh, because all of these people believed in multiple gods. It wasn't, they weren't monotheists. The Israelites were the only monotheists on the block. And they say to themselves, we've captured the idol that has brought these Israelites all kinds of power, victory over the might of Egypt. And they knew all the stories of the ten plagues and Moses and all that stuff. They've got this idol, so they bring it into their midst. Right? And they set it down in front of their God, who is here, 
uh, Dagon, who is like a half fish dude. Um, it's kind of probably where we get the idea of mer people. And so if you can imagine them worshiping the little mermaid, that's kind of what's happening here. And it makes sense, if you're a seafaring people, that your God would be a seafaring God. And what's more seafaring than a little mermaid, right? Honestly. And so they leave for the night, and everything's quiet, everything's dark in the temple of Dagon. But something happens. Dagon falls down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Now remember, I I talked about this several weeks ago. I talked about the importance of worship. And what is worship? Do you remember? It is to kneel, to bow, or to lay prostrate before God. So the Philistines come in the next morning and they say, Dude, what happened to our idol? And they come over here and they see, not only has Dagon fallen in front of the Israelite God the, uh, before the Ark of the Covenant, but they recognize the meaning of this. And the meaning of this is that our God is bowing, is worshiping before their God. And this is troubling. Are you troubled? No, because you're Israelites. You're saying what? Yeah, huzzah. Huzzah, thank you. Huzzah, there you go. And these fools, they put their little mermaid God up on the, the altar again. And they leave and that night, night falls and the worshipers, you know, leave and the temple there of Dagon is quiet and then something happens. It falls down again, only this time its head is cut off and its hands are cut off. Not only is it prostrate, but it has fallen upon the threshold, the, the door here of the temple and its head has been cut off and its hands have been cut off. And so the, the priests come in and the, the worshipers of Dagon come in the next morning. And they say, our God has, has fallen. And not only has he fallen, but his head is cut off, which is what you do for an enemy. And his hands have been cut off. And so what's their solution? Their solution is what we should not do anymore is step upon the threshold when you walk through the door. This is what happens when you don't know the true and living God. You come up with really crazy superstitions. And so they're, you know, don't step, do you play like step, don't step on the crack or you break your mother's back thing? It's sort of the same thing, only with the little mermaid uh, in there somewhere. So this is what the solution uh, for these guys. And they're very troubled, very troubled by this. And they say, we got to get this God out of here. Uh, we can't handle him. He is too much for us. And so they go to send him on. Now, this to me uh, brings out some really important points about the character, the nature, who, who God is. And remember, we've been looking at these stories, and we love the stories in their context. And we see the larger context of God moving through the book of Samuel and the book of Kings. But all of this pales in comparison to the information, the knowledge that we receive about who God is and what God is like. And the first thing that we learn in this story is that God doesn't need you. And God doesn't need me. And God is in the midst of the Philistines. They have his ark. He's not trapped there or something. God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But but the ark is there. There are no priests to pray. There are no armies to invade. There are no people around who who are making sure that these things happen. No, God is alone, as it were, in the midst of these Philistine camps. And he seems to be doing just fine. And this, I think, relieves me a little bit of some pressure. Sometimes we think that we need to make the things that God desires happen, or, or in our witnessing, in our sharing of Jesus. It's all about how eloquent or clever or smart you are. It has nothing to do with that. God can take the smallest word, the weakest word, your weakest word, your worst performance, and he could take that and use it to cut to the quick of a person. Your strength is meaningless in the face of, of a living God. And that's what this story is telling us. 
We read in Acts chapter 17, I really like this story. Uh, Paul is in the middle of Athens, and there's gods everywhere. I mean, they, uh, God on every block instead of a church on every block like we have around here. A god on every block, and he's walking through the town, and there he sees a god to an unknown god is the inscription there. Like, there are so many gods out there. There's probably a god that we haven't thought of or met yet, and so we'll make a, you know, an idol for him so he doesn't feel left out. And Paul says, let me tell you who that unknown god is. That is the creator of heaven and earth. And he says uh, in verse 24 of Acts chapter 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is not served by human hands means that God is not in need of us. He doesn't need us to defend him. He doesn't need us to save him. He doesn't need us to accomplish any of these things. Instead, what he does is he offers us an avenue, an invitation, a, hey, come and serve me. Hey, come and be a part of what I'm doing in the world. I invite you to participate out of my great grace. I'd love for you to engage in these things. But it isn't as though God needs us. And that relieves us, I think, of a great weight of responsibility. Because if you looked across the world or Portage or your families today and you see the brokenness, you say, man, there's a lot of saving that needs to happen. And you might take that as a weight upon your shoulders. And it's not. It's not. In fact, you know, I was, I was reading uh, this week about um, how Europe, because it has become secularized, you know, not Christian at all, and um, Muslims have just kind of in droves begun to fill Europe to the point at which the estimates are within 10 to 20 years, Europe could be largely Muslim countries. We see the same sort of concern uh, here in the United States. I see people talking about this, and people are very concerned. And I say, why? If it becomes a Muslim country, can God be less powerful? In fact, you know what's interesting about the story here? God has more success revealing his power and his glory to those Philistines when his people aren't there. Isn't that troubling? When, when he sets himself free of the Israelites, suddenly the Philistines see this God is too much for us. Send him to Gath. Like, we don't want this guy anymore. I wonder if that's a word for the church today. I wonder if that's a word for us to ask the question, are we that way? Is God moving in the world and removing Christians to such an extent that he can actually begin to do something because we're not helping, we're hurting? You know, idolatry uh, is an issue in the world. It always has been and it always will be. The more that I study the scriptures and the more that I see the power of God in the midst of the Philistines, in the midst of his own people, the more Jesus' words really ring true to me. Why are you worried about tomorrow? Why are you worried about what you eat and what you drink, what you wear and where you live? If God sees birds and takes care of them, if God clothes uh, flowers and they're cut down the next day and thrown into the fire, and yet he values you so much that he sends his son to deliver you from sin and death, why are you worried about all of these things? 
He says, instead, seek first the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God and everything else can be added to you, right? Your your priorities are set in the wrong place. The Gentiles, the Philistines, the people of the world, they're worried about machinations and making things happen. They're worried about what they're going to drink and what they're going to wear, what their 401k looks like. They're so worried about worldly things that you have an opportunity to show them freedom. Freedom from all of that. And to be a people that is truly free. One of the things that we learn from this as well, not only is that God doesn't, doesn't need us, but that God will have no one beside himself. That he will not tolerate an idol standing above him or even near him. And I know we've talked a lot about idolatry. We do throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. And it is a thing that is alive and well today. Only we've become really boring idolaters. I was reading, I think, I don't remember who it was this week that posted it, but I was reading a thing about a Satanist uh, after-school program. Um, but the thing about Satanists today is that they're boring and lame. Like, they're just like atheists that like metal. That's all they are. They don't even believe in Satan anymore. Like, we have become so lame as people that we don't even put Little Mermaid idols up in our houses anymore. What do we put? Men! We put ourselves, we put our knowledge, we put our technology, we put our science, we put our, all that we can conceive of, which is infinitesimally small compared to the vastness of the universe. We have become worshipers of man. We don't even have cool like idols anymore. Idolatry takes two forms. Unfortunately, Christians are guilty of breaking both, and pagans are guilty of only breaking one. The two forms of idolatry are this, creating a God in our own image. And I belabored this last week, so I won't hit it too hard, but creating a God that looks like us, thinks like us, acts like us, loves what we love, hate what we hate. He hates uh, LGBT people and, and, and gay marriage and all of these things. He hates people who provide uh, abortions, but he doesn't care so much about the pride and the gossip The arrogance, the laziness, the sloth and indulgence in our own lives. Doesn't care about our overeating, doesn't care about all of these other things. Because he loves what we love and he hates what we hate. A God of our own creation. The second uh, kind of idolatry is to take our, and this is sort of the most alive in the West, I think, to take our pleasures and turn them into God's. To take our pleasures and instead of making and crafting a uh, a little mermaid that can protect us from the sea, we place uh, there our hunger and desires, the things that we love the most, searching out those things and and holding on to them, our pleasures that monopolize our thoughts, our times, whether we're talking about uh, entertainment, video games, sex, uh, work, family, whatever it is, we take it and we place it near God, this thing that we find our joy in. And, you know, it's just, it's so... It's so broken, and I've been under great conviction myself over this. The question of when my mind goes neutral, what am I finding my joy and my hope and my life in? Psalm 16 says this, and this has kind of been my prayer lately as I wrestle with the idolatry in my life. David says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And all the saints of the land are the excellent ones 
When I look around the world and I look around the people that are around me and who I take my delight in, I delight in them. The sorrows of those who run after other gods will multiply their drink offerings. I will not pour out. I won't even take their names on my lips because the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. And the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance waiting for me. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, my mind is on him as my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, always before me. And because he is at my right hand, because he is leading me, I shall not be shaken. And so my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh is secure for he will not abandon me to the grave or let me see corruption Because you, O God, make known the paths of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. It's a beautiful text because it reveals to us something important. That God just doesn't want us to accept salvation. He doesn't just want us to repent and bow before him. He doesn't just want us to accept him for acceptance sake. But he wants to reveal to us that he is the source of all true joy. That as we pursue other things and other gods and we create idols of all kinds, that we are pursuing things that are vain and become ashes in our mouths. Rather, he invites us to recognize the truth that he is the source of joy. And when we search for joy in other things, we steal from him the glory that is due his name, but more important, well, not more importantly, just as importantly, we steal from ourselves the source of true joy, true peace, true life. And so he invites us to know him as the source of living water. And so he is the idol breaker The word that we read here in in Hebrew, that Dagon falls upon the threshold, it isn't that it breaks off, it is cut off, like you would cut off the head of an enemy, right? It's cut off and cast aside. The hands that would be his defense against the one true God, the hands that would complete deeds for his people, were he a real thing and not just an idol, are cut off and cast aside. And the invitation of scripture is this, you have an idol, You have an idol today, and God invites you to destroy it now before he comes and destroys it for you. It's the invitation. It's a wonderful invitation. So all of Philistia is a buzz. Not only have they defeated Israel and they continue to push them back, but they have captured the ark. But the ark has brought upon them great trouble. And so the solution, of course, is put it on a cart and get rid of it. Let's send it to Gath. So it moves from Ashdod down to Gath. And the people of Gath are like, great, guys, thanks. Thanks a lot. What's interesting uh, about this text, and here is here's one of the problems when we translate the Bible, because often when we translate the Bible, we forget that some of these stories are for for 11-year-old children around a campfire, and we tame them down. 
Right? We tame them down rather than allowing them to speak with the kind of humor and life that is actually existent in the text. Most of your Bibles probably say that it came to Gath in verse 9 and the city is besieged with terror. They're like, oh my goodness, you brought the God of the Israelites into our midst. What did you do this for? And they're all struck with tumors. You see that there in your Bibles? Tumors. This is not tumors in the sense of these people have cancer. This is, how do I put it delicately? This is hemorrhoids. God strikes the people with hemorrhoids. Literal translation, didn't make it up, didn't write the Bible, got a problem with it, talked to somebody else. They are bleeding from their bottoms. This is what God has done. And if you're a proper 11-year-old child and you're sitting around the campfire and your uncle or grandfather or grandmother tells you a story, so it goes to Gath and guess what happens? God gives them hemorrhoids. Which is really funny if you're not a Philistine, right? And this is what's happening. I didn't know how to flannel graph that. We didn't have a flannel graph of that. Um, and I haven't had that before. So I assume there'd be lots of sitting and laying and crying and praying. And this is what the people do. They're smarter, apparently, than Ashdod because it sort of, it almost feels like it's the very next day. It might have been a, a little bit longer. But for, for whatever the length of time is, they're like, we've got to get rid of this thing. We cannot have this God here anymore. What should we do? Send it to Akron. So they do. They say, no more gas. So they send it up to Akron. And the people of Akron say, what in the world are you guys doing sending us the Ark of the, 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 Ark of the Covenant? Why are you giving us this thing? In fact, uh, verse, uh, the verse says specifically, they have brought around to us the Ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. And there's this great panic in the city. And, and, and it seems like maybe some kind of riot or something like that. Maybe a big dispute between, between people saying, no, we should keep it or no, we should get it. Whatever it is, people are dying in this great, uh, this great destruction. It's kind of the literal Hebrew word there. And those who are not killed through this, this rioting, this clamor, this whatever else is going on, are struck with, you guessed it, hemorrhoids, tumors. Thank you. Somebody gets it. Because I was cracking up as I, when, as soon as I realized this and I reread the story, I was like, this is funny. God, your sense of humor, I will never mess with you. Like, seriously. Never. Never. I'm sorry. I repented of th- whatever I couldn't think of. I just said, whatever it is, forgive me. And so they say to themselves, we can't have this anymore. We've got to get rid of this thing. And so they put it on the carpet and they said, send it back to Israel. It's been about seven months that this ark has been with the people. Send it to Israel. But you can't just send it to Israel by itself. The priests of Dagon recognize that they have offended the God of the Israelites. They have defended Yahweh. And they've got to do something to make it right. We use the, the fancy theological term atonement. There needs to be peace between the Philistines and the God of the Israelites. So what should we do? Well, they don't know God and they don't have his law and there aren't any Levites to instruct them. And so they say, well, we've been beleaguered with, with, uh, with mice and rats. This has been a thing that's happened. So let's make five rats um, out of gold. We didn't have flannel graph rats either. Emery helped me. Five rats out of gold, and we'll put it on the cart, and then we'll make five hemorrhoids out of gold. I'm not joking. I don't know how you do that either, so we just made blobs. So five tumors, five, uh, and put them on the cart, and we'll send it to Israel. 
And if it goes directly to Israel, we'll know that it was their God that struck us. And if it doesn't go right to Israel, we'll just we'll recognize it's a, a coincidence of some kind and we'll have to figure something else out. Well, to their great and everlasting relief, it does indeed go directly uh, to Israel. And the people rejoice. You're the Israelites. Yeah, there you go. We're getting into it now. It only took like 25 minutes. Good job. Good. And so they're, they're cheering and they've, they've brought it in. And so the, the, the Ark of the Covenant comes in and there's a great stone in the field where the Ark comes. And the Israelites who are there in the field harvesting their grain come in and they bring the Levites come in. And, and they, uh, they bring the uh, Ark and they put it on this great stone and they bring the, the, the mice and the, the tumors and they put them on the great stone and they take the cows and they burn them as a sacrifice. Probably didn't look like that. But... Burned as a sacrifice to the Lord God. And we might say, well, that sounds like a good idea. Except for what? Except for what? Where is the ark supposed to be? On a stone in the middle of a field? No. It's supposed to be in the Holy of Holies. But instead of taking it immediately to the Holy of Holies, as the priest should know, they keep it there and set it on a rock. Now, they are probably thinking that this is a great way of honoring the Lord. Except for God didn't ask them to honor him this way. And this is one of the things that we need to commit to when we come to a real and living God. I mean, not a God of our imagination, not a God that looks at us, not like little mermaid idol gods, but a real living God. A God who has created the stars, who created the ground you walk on, who created the heart that beats in your chest, who created the synapses that fire in your mind that allow you to hear these words, translate them, and make sense of them. The God who has created all of this, the real and living God, says, worship me like this. It is wise to worship him like. He says, this is a commitment that the people of Israel still seem to be missing. And I'm like, Why are you doing this? And so much so that because they have left it long enough on this stone that 70 of the men of this area of Beth Shemesh look under the the, the covering and they look at the ark and God strikes them down. Strikes them down. Like he kills them because that looks like he just knocked them out but he kills them. And then in chapter 7 or at the end of chapter 6 there Verse 20, it says this, The men of Beth Shemesh said, in light of everything, in light of the, of the tumors and the, the mice and this, this sort of return of the ark, in light of, of God striking many of them down, they say this, in verse 20, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? The wording there is kind of awkward, and so let me, let me phrase it this way. Who can stand before this holy other and completely different than us, God? And where can we send him? Isn't that interesting? The Philistines didn't know what to do with the holy God. They were clueless as to what to do with the holy God. And so they said, send it to Gath. And it got to Gath and they said, no, no, no. Send it to Ekron. And it got to Ekron and they said, get rid of this thing. Send it back to Israel. And it gets to Israel. And what does God's own people say? Where are we going to send this? Because it belongs to us. We, where are we going to send it? Chapter 7, the first couple of verses there are, are included in this, in this story. 
And it says in uh, verse 7 that the men of Kiriath-Jerim come and they take the ark. So it goes from Gath here, or I'm sorry, it goes from Ekron here to Beth Shemesh. And then from Beth Shemesh it goes up to Kiriath-Jerim. Now do you remember, there's a little pop quiz from last week and this week. Where is the tabernacle located? Way over here, right? I mean, it's not way. Like you could, you could, that's a doable journey. It's a doable journey. But they send it to Kirjareth, uh, uh, Jerem, and they put it inside the house uh, of a man, uh, of the house of uh, Aminadab. It's on top of a hill. And the son there, Eliezer, they consecrate him as a priest. They say, you're going to be the priest and you just watch over this thing. And if you're uh, like me, um, or if you've spent a weekend with a six-year-old yelling at her, why are you doing this? Leave the cat alone. Stop chasing the dog through the house. Stop putting arcs in houses that aren't the holy of holies. It's not a direct correlation, but you hopefully get the point. Why are you doing this, Israel? You know the way of God. God has revealed, it's not like a mystery. It's not like God's been secretive and he's got like all of these secret things in his back that he's just waiting to whip out and throw at you and say, bam, ha ha, caught you sinning. Right, God's not doing that. He's a holy God that wants to reveal himself to you and invite you into his presence, into his joy, into his life, into his love, into his hesed, which is a word that we see throughout the Old Testament, into his covenant Faithfulness, that God will be faithful to you no matter what comes. That's the will of God. Why, why are you pursuing something less than this? Notice the end, chapter 7, verse 2. From that day that the ark was lodged in kiriath Jerem, a long time passed. 20 years. So for 20 years, Israel kept the Ark of the Covenant uh, in a house, uh, miles away from where it was supposed to belong, not being sacrificed to, like they're not, they're not doing anything that they've been commanded in the Torah in the Old Testament. And what do they do? Notice that last part of this verse. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. That is, they didn't just cry out. They didn't just say, God, where are you? God, can you help us? They didn't just get on their knees and pray. They lamented. That's like your parent dies or your child dies or your spouse dies. And you are so broken that you're weeping and crying out. They lament, God, where are you? God, help us. And God's got to be wondering... I'm, I'm, I'm here. I, the, how different would the story have been? For 20 years, how different would the story have been? Had they simply obeyed the word of God and brought the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies, restored their worship as was given to them by God, and, and lived according to his laws. How much difference would there have been? Would they have lamented for his words? Would they have cried out, God, where are you? Would they have been uh, missing his blessing and his presence if they had simply done what was clearly laid out for them? And before we look at them and say, oh, those dumb Israelites, those silly Philistines, are we really that different? And we, we want a word from the Lord. 
we are hurting. Uh, we look across the, the world and we see all kinds of, I mean, an insane amount of brokenness. We look across the churches and we see churches and Christians and people who are wandering away from what we call, which is properly called orthodoxy, that is true teachings. They're saying, I know it says in the Bible, but you know what? I don't care. We're smarter now. We know more now. We're, we're, we're going to kind of follow our own way. We see amongst orthodox churches great schisms and differences and, and divisions. We look across our towns and we see them broken and hurting and we want to hear a word from God. We want to hear the blessing of God. And I have to stop and wonder and just say, have we asked the question, are we worshiping as he has commanded us to worship? Jesus is asked by a Pharisee, this guy who's an expert, like this dude, he's gone to Bible college, he's gone to seminary, he's got a PhD, he's the smartest guy in town. He says, Jesus, tell me the greatest commandment. Because there's like 360 of them, right? Which one's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, you know the answer, right? Love God with everything. Love him with all of your will. When you want something, when you want something, your will takes you to that thing. Love God with all your will. Love him with all your mind. Every thought that you allow in through music or movies or books or conversation, every thought that goes out through conversation and interaction, your whole mind, love God. With all of your emotion, with everything you feel, with every, with every emotion that, that causes disgust and every emotion that causes affection, use all of those emotions, direct them all toward the things that are holy and righteous and pure and true and with your strength, all your strength, everything you are capable and able of doing. Now, we look at Jesus sometimes, we say, boy, isn't it great that Jesus came because he made the world a whole lot easier. I'm sorry, did you just hear what I said God calls you to be? Because I'd rather obey 360 laws. I can memorize those, do them off on a checklist, but all my heart, all my mind, all my will, all my strength, everything about me directed towards God, man, that's a tall order. And thank God then that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he put to death, death itself, that you might be placed in front of God as a righteous person, not because you obeyed every one of those 360 some odd laws or because with your whole life you've been pure in body, mind, heart, and spirit but because of the imputation of his own righteousness given to you and filling you with the power of the Holy Spirit so that you might become visibly the righteousness of God. The grace of God is amazing and powerful and able to do more than we can imagine or suspect and feel free to applaud all you want for God deserves it all. So when we pursue lesser things, God has to ask the question, why my people, why my holy people would you pursue lesser things? Do you see those Philistines in their foolishness? Don't be like them. Seek me and live. Don't worry about tomorrow, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then every other grace can be added fully and joyfully to you. That's your promise here today, church. That's our search here today, church. As you leave this place this morning, pursue not the lesser joys, 
but fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Let's stand and sing this song to him.